Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I, uh, I have noticed that people are somewhat enamored with knowing the future. There's plenty of books and TV shows and uh, sort of speculation about this. Everyone imagines that what a glorious thing it would be if they could look six months, a year, maybe five years down the road and see what was going to happen. They kind of imagine all the wonderful things that they could do with that knowledge, how it would improve their life and they could straighten out all their situations and all that. But behind all of these assumptions is the idea that the future is good, or at least that it doesn't involve bad concerning you. In other words, people don't contemplate when they're thinking about time travel or the future or knowing all those things. They don't really contemplate the possibility that, that knowing the future might be actually discovering about some terrible fate that they're going to face. Future wouldn't be so kind if you looked into the future and what you saw was extreme suffering, extreme hardship and anguish. As a matter of fact, knowing that now would only multiply the anguish before it ever gets here. I don't know about you, I've, I suffer from a tinge of, of needle phobia. I'm one of those people, like, if I, if I have to get an injection that, that I know is coming up, I mean, I will anguish over that for hours. Sometimes days ahead of time, I'll be thinking about that one momentary tiny little prick in my arm that barely you feel and goes away, but I will multiply the anguish over that moment so many times over, so much worse than what the actual reality is. I wind up suffering unnecessarily because I'm anticipating, because I know that tomorrow or the next day or this afternoon or whatever, I'm going to have to suffer that little teeny bit of pain. I couldn't imagine if I knew of a real pain, a real anguish that I was going to have to suffer in the future. It would make every day almost unbearable. Walking through the day, thinking about getting up, contemplating what's going to be in store for me, going to bed that night, dreaming and tossing and turning, thinking about all the anguish that I was going to have to go through. Well, today we come to a passage where Jesus is in exactly that position. He's, he's talking about the future, and the future he's talking about is a future of suffering and anguish and hardship and death. And it's about him. And he knows it, and he knows it clearly, and he has confidence in it, and he has to live with it day in and day out. The passage is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. This is what uh, Matthew tells us. It says, Jesus was going, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside on the way, and He said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. This was uh, Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem. He was making his his, uh, final ascent. We know from the other Gospels that this conversation took place 
uh, near Jericho. So he's down in the bottom of the Rift Valley about to make the 2,500 foot ascent up the hills and through the crevices to the mountaintop where Jerusalem was sitting. And along the way, there would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of other people on the road because this was the Passover season. And they would have either been, they would have either passed by or been passed by other people who were on their way to Jerusalem. So the roads were crowded. There was a lot of hustle and bustle. Some of them might have been accompanying Jesus and his disciples along the way, kind of going up in the throng with him because he had made such a stir as a healer. Others were unaffiliated, just sort of travelers along the way. But as they're making their way, Jesus wants to have this private conversation again with the disciples. And so we're told that he pulls them aside, away from everyone else, and he wants to prepare them one more time for what lays ahead. This isn't the first time that he's shared any of this with them. In fact, this in Matthew's account is the third time, but probably more than that, because when we we're first told about this, back in Matthew 16, it says, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. From that time, he began to tell them. In other words, this, this was probably a repeated theme along the way. He was talking to them and talking to them about what was his future. You may remember at that point, in Matthew 16, I mean, he couldn't believe it. Peter pulled him aside and told him, God forbid, this is never going to happen to you. This cannot happen to you. Uh, they couldn't accept that reality. But he kept sharing it anyway. Matthew 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. It's this whole thing was sort of building and building and building in their mind. And they were hearing it again and again and again because Jesus was talking about it all the time. It was on his mind all the time. He was contemplating it all the time. And now in the final ascent, the final miles before they head to Jerusalem, now they know it. Now they are aware. They, are, they have been, it's been drilled into them. There's no more questioning. There's no more pushing back. Just sort of the silent resignation. In fact, when Jesus says this, John tells us in John 11, when Jesus wants to make this final sort of journey, he tells them, let's go back to Judea. In John 11, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? So now they know. They're not questioning it anymore. They know it's going to happen. And they, uh, they're walking now straight into the eye of the storm or heart of the storm, we might say, right into the, the realm of their enemies. And they knew it. It was confirmed in their minds. And yet here Jesus is, solemnly, determinedly walking. He knew what awaited him. He knew it. Because of all the hatred that had risen, they knew it as well. They might have doubted it at the beginning, but they've seen the animosity now. They've seen the vitriol. They've heard the verbal attacks. They've even seen attempts on Jesus' life. They know it. And if they didn't know it from all that, if they had been reading the Old Testament, it would have been clear to them God had ordained this, that the Messiah would be afflicted and smitten by God, stricken. He was 
Isaiah 53 says, to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Or if they read Psalm 22, they would have known the prophecy about the crucifixion where the, where the suffering servant was saying, my, my strength is dried up like the, the, like the potsherd, my, my uh, life is poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart is melting in me like wax. And I'm laid in the dust of death. And over and over and over again, they could have read it. They would, they would have known it from the scripture. But even apart from that, they, they now have heard it from Christ. They've now seen all the evidence of it all around them. It's all well understood. They know what awaits them. And Jesus clearly knows what awaits him. He knows the future. And he knows it involves his suffering and his death. But this is his sort of final attempt to prepare them, to make sure that they know that as things begin to unravel and unfold, or they're not really unraveling, they're actually following plan. This is all a part of God's divine, sovereign plan. It's all laid out by God's decreed will. It's important for them to know that Jesus is going, and He's no victim. He's not some sort of hapless person who gets caught up in something. He's going, and he's not a victim. He's going with full knowledge of what was ahead and full willingness to endure it. And he was willing because he knew it was necessary. It had to happen. It had to happen if there's ever going to be salvation. Now, understanding all that, we can sort of break this apart and and see the details of, of what's going on here as he shares the details of what he will suffer. He also shares the determination to endure that suffering. And you can see that beginning in verse 17 with that determination, uh, Jesus' determination to suffer. He obviously knows what's going to happen. He's obviously well aware of it. And yet it doesn't deter him from going. He's going to Jerusalem, we're told in verse 17. He's not turning back. In fact, Luke 9:51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is crucified and ascended, when he knew the sort of hour had arrived, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so so in his face they could see it, in his eyes they could see the determination that was there for him to go through with this. And when all the events unfolded, they would understand that the result of all this wasn't the result of him sort of being caught off guard. It wasn't him miscalculating. It wasn't him being overly optimistic or even his weakness and inability to do anything about it. Instead, this was a deliberate, voluntary act of unparalleled love that was driving him. In fact, when they came to arrest Jesus, we will hear a little bit later in Matthew 26, Peter draws a sword to try to fight back, and Jesus tells him to put the sword away. And then he says in Matthew 26, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He had every out. I mean, he could get out. This was not the result of some 
some weak uh, person succumbing as a victim. He intentionally was doing this full, fully aware of what his role was in God's plan of redemption. He was the Lamb of God to be slain for the world. And he embraced that. He understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And in doing this, in his determination, his sort of uh, solid commitment to do this, he was demonstrating not only the depth of love that he had for humanity to suffer in this way, but he is demonstrating his love for the Father and the Father's plan for this act of redemption. Mark, by the way, when Mark records this, the same event over in his gospel, Mark chapter 10, he says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking out ahead of them and they were amazed and they were also afraid. And taking the 12, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So in the previous times when they heard this, they were protesting, they were pushing back. Now they're just walking along in silent awe and in fear. They could see Jesus. He wasn't lagging behind like some sort of condemned criminal going to the gallows. He was out marching out ahead of them with this determination that provoked awe within them. And they were fearful themselves. They were still themselves wanting to cower back because of everything that they knew was coming. And they might have expected him to take those kinds of precautions, but he wasn't. And they were amazed at his remarkable resolve to press ahead. Why? Well, down in verse 28, we, we get the explanation because Jesus says this is the reason he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. His purpose, his purpose for coming into this world was for this suffering. It was for this death. And he determined that he was going to endure it and fulfill this purpose that God had laid out for him. He was going to give his life as a ransom, as a payment, to pay the price that his disciples ought to be paying, that you ought to be paying, and that I ought to be paying, He was going to pay the price, the ransom price, to free you from the penalty of the sin that has ensnared you and enslaved you. He was going to give His life in ransom for years so that you could be atoned for, so that you could be freed, so that you could be uh, recipients of not only His cleansing, but of eternal life. All that to bring about redemption and reconciliation to God. Jesus talks about this whenever he's discussing with his disciples in John chapter 10, this image of a shepherd. He said he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He takes that image of a shepherd because a shepherd, sort of the good shepherd, bore the responsibility of the sheep. And so when he went out and he took them into the dangers of the world, if they faced wolves or lions or bears out in the wilderness, he was willing when they faced those kinds of dangers to put himself between the sheep and the danger. And if it meant costing his life, he would do it. He would lay down his life to protect those sheep. 
And Jesus says, that's who I am, but I'm putting myself between you and the danger that you face on the day of judgment. The danger that you face from God. The danger that you face from His wrath. I'm placing myself between you and Him. And I'm laying down my life for you. In fact, he, it's an interesting word there in John chapter 10. It's not even the word, uh, the word that you might expect when you hear the word life, which in the Greek might be the word zoe, which talks about your sort of physical life, or bios, which is another word kind of talking about your, your uh, you know, physical uh, sort of corporeal body. He uses the word suke, which we often translate soul. I'm laying down my soul for you. I mean, the very entirety of who I am. In other words, this is, this is not just a physical sort of uh, act that I'm doing. This is all of the anguish and the internal turmoil, all the spiritual turmoil. I'm offering all of that on your behalf as the good shepherd. I will lay down my soul for you. And he explains there in John chapter 10 that he does it, and when he does it, He does it of his own accord. I lay it down, he says. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He actually says this is the charge that he received from the Father, the commandment. The Father commanded this in eternity past. He laid this this sort of plan out that there had to be atonement for the sins of humanity, that blood had to be spilled in order for people to escape the wrath of God. And now, out of His profound love, not only for the Father and not only for the plan, but His profound love for His disciples, Jesus intentionally, willingly embraces this, fully aware of the magnitude of the sacrifice. That's a depth of love you cannot measure. And the disciples, they were beginning to see it. They may not have fully grasped it at this point, but once they got there, once they witnessed it all, they didn't even, at this point, they didn't even realize that a part of his anguish would be that they themselves are going to abandon him. They're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. They didn't even realize that they're going to be part of the anguish at this point. They haven't even fully grasped that, but they're starting to see a picture of the determined love of this Savior for humanity. John, the Apostle John later will write in 1 John 4, In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's a propitiation? A propitiation is a satisfaction. It's it's an answer to a call, and the call in this situation is a sacrifice. So, So God sent His Son to suffer. He devised a plan to make His own Son suffer for your sake. And John is saying, this is a love that blows my mind. I can't get my mind around this. This is, if ever there was love, this is love. That God put together a plan that involved the suffering of His own Son. He sent His own Son into the world and made His own Son a propitiation 
for our sins. And then he goes on to say this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. I mean, if this is the way God loved, how could you do anything other but respond with that level of love? And it isn't just loving one another, it's love for God. Paul says, we, we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died, and that we who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. So that was his conclusion. If this is the way he loved us, he says it there in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ compels us. We're compelled now. We're compelled by this kind of example of love. Here he is, he had this willing and determined focus to love us in this way. How much more then should we have a willing and determined aspiration to love him? no matter what. So the disciples are beginning to see this now as he's walking up to Jerusalem and continuing to share with them what's in front, the jaws of affliction that will take hold of him soon, which really takes us to the second point, the details of what he shares with them in verses 18 and 19. This is, as I said, the the third and And last prediction that's recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, the earlier ones in 16, chapter 16, Jesus had mentioned that he was going to Jerusalem and the religious authorities were going to kill him. In chapter 17, he repeated that and even added the note that he was going to be betrayed. And now once again, he tells them the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, that is the the, the ones who made up the religious authority, the Sanhedrin, they were, they were sort of the senate, if you will, of Israel. They were the governing body in religious and in civil matters. And, and, and the disciples understood this now. They may not have understood it when he first predicted it, but by this time they had witnessed all of the conflicts that Jesus had been having with these religious leaders And the implications would have been more and more clear as they went further and further in Jesus' ministry, as they watched his approach with the political and religious power brokers in Israel. Over and over again, he had assaulted the very institution on which they sort of held their power, which was the oral law and all their traditions. Jesus had assaulted that over and over again, and they would realize that you couldn't make those kinds of direct challenges again and again and again without severe reprisals. So even if they didn't believe him at first, it would have been easy for them to believe now. There was a lot of hostility awaiting him. But Jesus says, He's going to be delivered over to them. In other words, this is not going to be them busting in somewhere and kind of taking him by sort of unawares. He's going to be handed over, meaning he's going to be betrayed. Meaning that there's going to be somebody, it's going to be an inside job. There's somebody walking on that road with them. There's somebody who is close enough and near enough to the situation. They're going to, they're going to figure out a way. They're going to hand Jesus over. So even before he feels the first sting of the whip on his back, he's suffering the anguish of betrayed friendship. 
He knew it was coming. He knew all the suffering was coming. He knew the betrayal was coming. He knew he was walking alongside of a man who was going to turn him in. I have no idea how he did it. I have no idea how you endure that kind of anguish. I've never experienced anything like I think the closest I got was, you know, I was I, in my previous church, I was, I was preaching through First uh, Corinthians on sexual immorality, and one of the, one, a couple of deacons came to me and said, you can't preach that stuff. You preach that again, you're going to be fired. And I had, I had just preached like the first part of a two-part series. So, I, I mean, I had a choice to make. I could stand up next week and say, uh, you know, the rest of this is not important. Let's just move on. Or I could preach the text and lose my job. And I knew what I had to do. And all week I knew what I had to do. And I labored all week under the reality of what I was about to do. Every week, I, every day I would get up and go to work. And I would open up the scripture. And I would study it. And I would read the implications. And I would put together a sermon. I remember showing, waking up on Sunday morning and just this weight on me. Sitting, trying to sing songs through a worship service understanding what was about to happen. I remember walking up the steps like they were lead in my boots, knowing I was about to preach my last sermon. And I stood up and I preached the second half of that message. As soon as I prayed, somebody popped right up and said, there's going to be a special meeting about the pastor tonight. That's just, that's nothing compared to what Jesus went through. That's nothing He's walking on this road and he knows that there's somebody going to betray him and that he knows that they're going to betray him and he's going to be handed over to these people and they're going to try him and they're going to falsely convict him and he's going to go to his death. He knows that. He says, says it right there, they're going to condemn him to death. That's their verdict, their judicial decision. Now they would be powerless to, to carry it out and so they would have to call along the Roman authorities because Rome doesn't allow subject nations to carry out death penalties in those days. And so it wasn't just the religious leaders. They're going to, then he says in verse 20, hand him over or deliver him over to the Roman uh, authorities, the Gentiles. This would have blown their minds. We don't know if this was the first time the disciples were hearing this because Nowhere before this has Jesus mentioned the Gentiles. It's always been handing over to the Jews, handing over to the Jews. But now, now it's the Gentiles who are involved. He's handed over to the Jews and then they hand him over to the Gentiles. Which, as I said, would have blown their mind because they've always thought the Messiah was the guy who was going to come and liberate them from their oppressor. They were an occupied nation. You can imagine if, if we had some foreign nation occupying us, and kind of keeping their thumb on us, you walk the streets every day, you see them walking around with their rifles and their guns, and you always know that if you step out of line in the smallest amount, that they were going to take your head off. And they had lived under that oppression their entire lives with Roman authority. And they had hoped and they had dreamed that there would rise up some, some national leader, this messianic figure, who was going to release them from this, this sort of occupying power. And now... Now they're hearing that their, their very own religious leaders are going to hand their Savior over to the Gentiles. And what are the Gentiles going to do? Well, they're going to mock Him. That's what He says. They would mock Him. In fact, we see this. It actually began with the Jews when they first took 
custody of Jesus. They're the ones who first blindfolded him and started beating him with canes and saying to him, prophesy and tell us which one of us hit you. Luke says all the while they were just constantly blaspheming him along the way through the night. When they had had their play, they drug him out and presented him to Pilate who upon hearing that he was from Galilee, tried to shirk his responsibility, and so he shipped him off to Herod. And we're told in Luke 23, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then they arrayed him in splendid clothing. They dressed him like some harlequin in a play and then sent him back to Pilate, parading him through the streets in this ridiculous outfit. Matthew 27 says the soldiers of Pilate took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion in front of him. All these hardened soldiers, these were the elite troops who would have guarded Pilate and guarded his fortress. These were the the best killers in the market. I mean, these guys were hardened, battle-hardened soldiers. And they would have been like any group of soldiers. They would have been uncouth. Uh, They would have been crass in their own way. They probably had plenty of opportunity to ridicule and to make fun and to abuse people. And now they have a live one right in front of them. And this whole sort of group of, of, of men, this whole battalion, they strip him naked in front of him. It says they went in put a scarlet robe on him and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, sort of a mock scepter, and then they all knelt before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Laughing, mocking, jeering. And then they stood up and they spat in his face. And then they took the reed that they had placed in his hand and started to strike him on the head, beat him over the top of the head with this reed. Jesus knew all of this. He knew all of this. He says to his disciples, I am going to be mocked. And yet he did it willingly. He didn't turn back. And he says, I'm going to be flogged which was also part of the routine when they went to crucify someone. They tried to speed up the death by taking a leather whip and lashing him across the ribs 13 times on each side and then 13 times on his back until there were lacerations all around his torso to, and he started to bleed out because that accelerated the, the process of dying and dehydration, excruciating pain, obviously. Jesus knew it. He said, I'm going to be flogged. He knew what was ahead of him, but in love, he just kept marching on straight to Jerusalem. And of course, they're going to crucify him, he says. They would tie that patchabellum, that, that cross beam uh, on his back and make him drag it through the streets of Israel. It's a 125-pound piece of timber. He was forced to carry all the way through the streets to the other side of Jerusalem and out the gate where he would find this, this 
stake that he was going to be affixed to. It had already been prepared to be sunk into the ground. He would be stretched out on that, of course, and nails placed in his hands. And then they would put a little block of wood where he could rest his naked body for some relief so that the wounds in his hands didn't tear completely through as the weight of his body hung there. We don't know exactly how, but we have discovered in 1978 a, a, a corpse of a person that was crucified had a single nail, a single nail driven through both heels so that the feet were attached together and then the nail was bent over at the side so it couldn't be pulled apart. So they completely immobilize him and then hoist him up uh, disrobed in this public venue as all the people come by and hurl their abusive words, mocking him along the way. Of course, they, they had seen this before. The disciples grew up in Israel. They crucified people all the time in Israel, so they had seen this before. Jesus had seen it. He knew it, but he kept going. In love, he willingly willingly gave himself over to it all. You know, Jesus had had said this to them so many times before, but perhaps the most sort of poignant time would have been the first time. The first time they ever heard this. And those images were beginning to appear in their mind. And it was at this point that Jesus actually says to them in Matthew 16, Therefore, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross and follow me. Because he says, if anyone would save their life, they're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. This was his determined love for us, but he says it compels a kind of love from you. This determined love compels a kind of love in return, a kind of willingness for you to take up your cross. And for those who realize this, for those who realize that they are losing their life, those who realize that their sin has already started to compound in their life, it's already bringing all the ill effects and consequences, it's already sort of destroying them externally, and it's eating away at their soul. And those who realize that when it's all said and done, whenever they face judgment, they're going to lose their life. For those people, if they want to find their life, he says, then you're going to have to lose it. You want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Walk this road with the same determination. I'm determined to love you, and you ought to be determined to love me. Well, as Jesus reminds his disciples at the very end, this is not the end. Because after it's all said and done, he says on the third day he'll be raised. That was also part of the plan. He also wanted to prepare them for that. That death ultimately is not going to conquer him. He would not be conquered by death, but instead he will conquer death. That that is why Jesus has the ability to make the promise of life. That's why he can say that if you lose your life for my sake, I will give you life because he has the power of life. 
He couldn't make that promise unless he had the power of life. In fact, he said this uh, over in the shepherd analogy in John chapter 10. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. You know what he's saying? This, none of this, no one's going to take my life. No one is going to take my life if I don't give it to them. Not only is he talking about sort of the circumstances of going into Israel, but even when he's put on the cross, you understand this? He cannot die unless he willingly gives up his life, unless he, unless he commits his spirit to God. He's the one who decides when he dies because he's the one who lays down his life and he's the one who can take it up again. He has the power to lay down his life, but he says, I also have the power to take it up again. I have the power of resurrection. And so this is the thing which allows him to promise you life and for you to know that it is life because the one who suffered all of these things wasn't conquered by them. He wasn't conquered by death, and he wasn't conquered by sin, and he wasn't conquered by the hatred. He conquered it when he took his life up again. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And why? Because he was the Lord of the universe. And the resurrection proved that. You know, you, you could intuit many of the things that Jesus said here, if you'd walked with him, you probably saw the rising animosity and the hatred and all that stuff. You might have been able to sort of maybe perceptively predict some of the things that would happen to him. You might have been able to say, you know what, you go there, you're probably going to die. But you would have never predicted that he would come back from the dead. Because the people that die, they stay dead. Unless you're the Lord of life. Unless you have the power to take up your life again. Which is exactly what Jesus did. This is why over in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, whenever he's writing to the Romans, that it's the resurrection of Christ from the dead that declares him to be the Son of God. He says in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Holy uh, Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. This is the way that you know that he's the Lord of life. Because he came out of the grave. No one does that, right? And not only that, but it was the validation that he himself had paid the price that was acceptable to God. He says, Paul says over in Romans chapter 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So it was your sins that, was, uh, that were the, the cause of all this suffering that he endured. It was your trespasses that caused him to be delivered up to this cross and to suffer all these things because it was actually you who deserved to be punished in that way because of the way you've treated God. So he was delivered up because of your transgressions. That's why he had to suffer. But the reason he came from the grave is your justification. That is, in other words, the reason that you're justified. That's the reason why now, as much as it was necessary for God to punish him on the cross, now it is absolutely necessary for God to allow you into heaven. You understand? It would be unjust now 
for God not to allow you into heaven. Why? Because you have been justified. Because the matter of justice has been solved. When Jesus came out of the grave, it proved that God accepted the sacrifice. And now every person who is in Christ stands before God justified. And God cannot now go against his own justice and deny you salvation. If you are in Christ, you are justified. This is a love that goes beyond words. This is a love that we cannot explain. All we can say with the Apostle Paul is that this love compels us. This love compels us. If he gave himself in this way, so deliberately, so intentionally, so resolutely determined to love you, how could you do anything but to love him in return? And if that means taking up a cross and going through the mockery and the shame that he went through, if that's what it means, that's what it means. There's no greater love, no greater love that you'll ever receive than the love of the Savior. Some of you are here today and you don't know that love. You know it maybe intellectually, but you don't know it in your heart. Because you're still mocking and you're still ridiculing and you're still rejecting. And you don't even know the one that you're rejecting is the greatest love in all the universe. But the call is there for you just like it was for the disciples. If you would have life, you must first lose it. And if you would be his disciple, you must take up the cross. Father, we're thankful for the clear, compelling example of our Savior. It's a love that is undeniable, resolute, and powerful. A love that redeems us from all of our guilt and shame, redeems us from our rebellion, and a love that keeps us for all eternity. How grateful we are for that love. And how much do we owe to you for it? Today, I pray that we would, with the same resolute determination, take up our cross daily and live for Him. No matter where you lead us, no matter what you call us to, Lord, may we be yours in the greatest experience of love that the universe has ever known. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.